1: Voice of Olympus, hosted by Hercules Invictus and Athena Victory, celebrates the mythic impulses of ancient Greece and Rome, and they invite you to celebrate with them. Welcome to Voice of Olympus. Greetings. Welcome to Voice of Olympus. I'm Hercules Invictus and today is our Age of Heroes show and we'll be starting off with Optimal Wellness. I'm greatly honored to announce that today's first guest is the legendary Brooks Kubrick, the founder of Dinosaur Training. Greetings, Brooks. How are you? I'm fine, Hercules. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm very excited about uh, our conversation in the hour uh, ahead. Uh, you have impacted the world of strength training in a very profound way since you started dinosaur training. Uh, so I'm very uh, curious to learn more about you.
3: Sounds good. Um, we've uh, we've not done a podcast before, so I'm not sure what format you want to use, uh, but you can uh ask me to talk you can ask questions fire away do whatever you'd like
1: i'm i'm sure we'll wing it wonderfully uh bills okay. a frequent guest on the show bill hinburn and he speaks very highly of you too and i've listened to a few of your uh, youtube uh, interviews so uh, uh you'll be awesome sounds good um, i guess Uh, My first question is, uh, what inspired you to begin the journey that led to dinosaur training?
3: Well, I'm 62 years old, and I started physical training in a systematic way at age nine. Um, I had very severe, uh, yeah, long, long time ago. I had very (laughs) severe childhood asthma. It it was so bad that, um, you know, my parents took me to different doctors. Different doctors prescribed different things. Nothing worked. And eventually we get to the last doctor and he says, Mr. Kubik, Mrs. Kubik, your son is just very weak. He's very frail. He's not strong. He's not in good health. And we need to be very careful here. He should not run. He should not go outside. He should not play with the other children. It's best for him to stay inside, and hobbies such as stamp collecting would probably be a very good thing for him. Okay. Mm. So basically, I was under doctor's orders not to go out and play and, you know, not to do the normal stuff that a normal kid does. And it was terrible, and it was really terrible because I actually did have very bad asthma. And I, you know, I would wake up in the middle of the night, unable to breathe, gasping for breath. I mean, it, it, it was horrible. So I, I read a lot, and I often, at that point in my life, I was often reading biographies. They had this wonderful series in the library of biography books of famous. People when they were young.
2: Uh-huh. You know, like
3: Daniel Boone when he was young, Jim Bowie, George Washington, Ulysses S. Grant, etc. And one mm-hmm. of them that I read was Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt the Rough Rider. And when I read about Theodore Roosevelt, I learned for the very first time that he had had very severe childhood asthma and a doctor prescribed an exercise program hmm. and his father actually turned one room of the family house you know it was basically a family mansion because you know rockefellers
1: Rock, turned yes.
3: one turned one room into a gymnasium and you know there there was there there was a heavy bag and there was a speed bag um Parallel bars, chinning bar, dumbbells, Indian clubs, those old, old-fashioned old pulley weights, you know, that they attach to the wall. You, you I remember those. Up. Weights go up and down. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Teddy started doing that, and lo and behold, he not only cured his asthma, but he became a very strong, healthy, fit, athletic young man. He was on all the sports teams when he was in college, and then you know he went out went out west, and he he was a cowboy and a frontiersman, and and then of course um, during the Spanish American War we had the famous uh, Rough Riders charging up San Juan Hill, with Teddy Roosevelt leading them, and then he becomes president. Okay, and I was like, uh-huh. wow, that is amazing, and I thought. And here's the important thing. I thought, if he could do it, maybe I can do it. And so armed with that, with nothing else, I started an exercise program to try to cure the asthma. Now, mm-hmm. I, didn't have, I didn't have barbells. I didn't have dumbbells. I didn't have weights. I didn't have a gym. My parents didn't want me to exercise because the doctor had said he shouldn't exercise. So I couldn't ask them to help buy something. You know, I couldn't let them know what I was doing. So the only thing that I could do, secretly, was to run to school every day. We lived half a mile away from the school. And so what I started to do, I'd wave goodbye to my mom, take off in the morning, walk down the driveway, turn to the right, cut past the great big hedges between our yard and the neighbor's yard. And that's when I was out of sight and I would start running and the asthma was so bad. I I'd run half a block and I, I it was like, it felt impossible to do any more. And I had to force myself to just, you know, one foot in front of the other all the way until I got to school that half mile. You know, which is not a big distance at all, but for a kid with asthma who's never run before, that's a lot. That and is, yes. I, I was so beat. I was so, you know, just, just wiped out. I, I remember I, I crawled under a bush and hid for like 20 or 30 minutes until, mm. you know, I stopped sweating and my, <laughs> my um, you know, my breath got back to normal and so on. And um, I did that. Every morning for, you know, basically an an entire season. I, I think it started in the spring. And somehow, lo and behold, I got to the point where I could run to school, you know, relatively easily. And the asthma somehow just kind of went away. And so that's at age nine. And it teaches me a whole lot of important lessons. You know, it shows me that we control our our health and our fitness mm-hmm. and our well-being. What the doctors tell us may or may not be right. Mm-hmm. The most, you know, exercise is an incredibly transformative thing to do. And that... If you just go out and work hard and you know hard, hard work, underscore, capitalize hard, 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 hard work, underscore hard work, if you do that, you will get good results. Mm-hmm. and that's an important thing to learn, an important thing to know. So that was my first real. Step into the world of physical training, and physical culture, and that's an inspiring that it,
1: story. Well, that's it, a very was, inspiring story.
3: Yeah, and and you know, it was it was a story. It was one of those stories that, you know, if you look back and you say, you know, what are the life stories? What are the things that happened in your life that made you who you are today? That's one of them for me. And. The next thing that happened was, you know, fast forward. I'm 11 years old. I'm in junior high school. You know, I'm out there playing with the other kids. I'm running. I'm doing things. You know, the doctor's admonition about don't go out and play with the other kids. You know, we've forgotten about that. That doesn't matter anymore. But then I decided what I wanted to do was I wanted to play sports. And the two sports that I was interested in, one was football, and the other was wrestling. And I knew that to do either of those, I had to be bigger and stronger. And somehow at that point in time, I I very much had in my mind that the way to get bigger and stronger was barbell and dumbbell training. So I started barbell and dumbbell training. You know, just like so many of us of that generation did, 110-pound weight set,
2: uh-huh. you
3: know, I, I had the, the, uh, the plastic weights filled with concrete, and I also had some iron plates and so on, and trained in my bedroom, and, you know, started out with 15-pound bar and a five-pound plate on each side, and, you know, very, very modest weights, very simple program, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, did that and gained about 15 pounds of muscle you know, I, I hit a growth spurt apparently and I gained 15 pounds of muscle the first um, wow. four or five, six, six months I was doing this and um, started, you know, really focusing on wrestling. I became a very good wrestler, um, won the city championship in, in junior high school, the junior high school championship. And, uh, you know, from there it was, you know, there, there was no holding me back, and, and eventually I got to the point where, um, you know, as I sometimes say, I, I feel like I spent most of my high school years, most of my junior high and high school years either on a wrestling mat um, or in the weight room,
1: one mm-hmm. or the other,
3: and, and um, you know, really focused on that, and, and really, you know, I had very, very good coaches and a very, very good... A, Two different schools, uh, three years at one school, and then my parents moved, and I finished my senior year of high school at another school. But we had very, very good wrestling programs with very good coaches in very competitive um, athletic conferences, in very competitive states for high school wrestling. Mm-hmm. One, one was Illinois, and one was Ohio. And you know, I, I just lived in a world where it was understood that in order to get good results, you had to get out and you had to work really hard. It was up to you. No one else could do it for you.
2: Mm -hmm. There were no,
3: you know, there were no magic bullets. There were no secret potions. There was nothing that was going to get you across the finish line, so to speak, other than your own hard work and effort. So again, again, a lot of really important life lessons. And, you know, I I, I think that, I'm sure you've talked with many people on the show who can share similar stories, either of starting out from a very disadvantaged position physically and really being motivated and inspired to get stronger, get stronger to healthier. Um, Mm -hmm. And or people who, learned at a very young age that, you know, you only get out of this activity, this endeavor, this strength training endeavor, you only get out of it what you put into it. Right. And I'll tell you what, that is a lesson that most people, unfortunately, never learn they it, it you know it doesn't get marketed it doesn't get thrown out there you don't see it on social media you know it's it's not something that your personal trainer can charge money to teach you it's something that you have to learn for yourself you 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 have to go through the journey and when you go through the journey doing it in a mindful way with with complete conviction complete total passion for what mm-hmm. you're doing
1: you Learn this,
3: and it becomes a very, very transformative thing.
1: So, and it applies to the things beyond bodybuilding too. It's uh, it applies to every area in life. If you apply yourself and you uh, put in the time and you believe that you will succeed and you keep plugging away at it, uh, eventually uh, you do. That that journey is universal.
3: It it, it absolutely is, and. You know, it's, it's interesting to, you know, to think back in my case, you know, I was inspired to do this by reading about Teddy Roosevelt.
1: Yes. And
3: Teddy Roosevelt is a person who took the lessons of physical training and used them to become one of the greatest, you know, one of the greatest Americans who ever lived. Mm-hmm. You know, some, someone who did wonderful things for our country and for the world. But but everything that he did, it was it was based off of those life lessons that he had learned in that room in the house that his dad turned into a gymnasium. It's it's the most interesting thing, and it happens over and over. Um, I, I I I I've talked to um, Artie Dressler, um, the Olympic weightlifting coach. Um, you know, mm-hmm. excellent Olympic weightlifter in his own right. Um, I, I, the, the author of the uh, Weightlifting Encyclopedia, very, very good book. You know, and and Artie was, was saying he was using the term transformative. He was saying that weightlifting, and he was speaking specifically about Olympic weightlifting, but it really, I think, applies to all physical training you know, he said, it is transformative. Mm-hmm. You, you you start to do it and it changes you, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally and in all possible ways. You come out a different person. Um, and, and that's, you know, I think that's very, very true. And it's something that that I know is true in my own life and I, I certainly um have have had many people report ever since i uh, wrote and published dinosaur training it, it came out in nineteen ninety
2: six
3: i I've had so many people over the years come back with similar reports you know i've, I've had I, you know i I've, I've had hundreds if not thousands of people talk about how dinosaur training has made them much better physically. It's made them bigger. It's made them stronger. It's made them more muscular, better conditioned. It's helped them achieve goals in sport or in in, in you know training for the military or law enforcement or, or whatever. But a lot of people go beyond that, and it's, uh, and they and they say you know it's it's made me a different person because mm-hmm. I've taken the lessons mm-hmm. and I've used the lessons in my life. And that's a really cool thing.
1: Yes it is. And like I said your your um uh, contribution to strength training is uh, is legendary uh and uh you'll be among those uh, spoken of in days to come. I'm your age by the way. I'm I'm 60. Okay. So uh yeah, identify so, so with we, what, we, what we... you're saying about the plastic weights and things. I I went through a very similar journey with those weights. <laughs>
3: Did, did you start out training at home?
1: Uh, yes. My father used to work out. He had cables, and he had a 110-pound uh, a uh, barbell set and some metal weights. And uh, so mm-hmm. I started. Mm-hmm. I've worked out on and off uh, throughout my entire uh, life, but it's always been a very important uh, uh, part of my life, and uh, it, it keeps uh, pulling me back. And now as I get uh, older, uh, it means even more to me, and uh, I'm sharing my passion for it uh, through these uh, podcasts. And uh, I'm also involved in my town. Uh, I'm the champion of the Tenafly Mayor's Wellness Campaign. And Mm -hmm. uh, I support uh, fitness and optimal wellness uh, locally. Again, to the best of my ability. Everybody does what they can Mm -hmm. with who they are and what they have. Uh, But it is a a great honor uh, uh, talking to you because I've been aware of Dinosaur Training uh, since it came out. Uh, and you've actually, uh, uh, looking through your website, I found a, a, a course uh, that's now motivating to push, pu- motivating me to push myself harder, the Dinosaur Dumbbell Training. Uh, yes. So I ordered it from you, and uh, I'm looking forward by the end of the year to be in uh, sh- shape enough to uh, actually uh, do the exercises that you have on the cover. Oh, great, great.
3: Yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy it. That's a fun course.
1: It, it, lo- it looks like a lot of fun, but uh, it, just like you were um, uh, inspired by Teddy Roosevelt, a lot of other people were as well, including myself. And actually, a block and a, and a half or so away from uh, my house, there's a monument to, to Teddy Roosevelt, and uh, well, um, I, I often spend time out there.
3: That's interesting. That's a um, that's one that's one of those uh, synchronicities. You know? Yes.
1: Yeah. Oh, and interesting. How did you develop your own personal philosophy? I know from uh, Bill Hinburn that you ordered material there when you were younger. You know, in terms of courses, and uh, that's how you guys uh, connected. Uh, what what led you to evolve the, the your own uh, uh, system and to call it dinosaur the dinosaur training method?
3: Okay. Good. Good. Good question. So. I went through high school, um, was a, uh, you know, a, a very successful high school um, wrestler, won a state championship in Illinois in Greco-Roman wrestling. I finished third in the state in um, Ohio in uh, the the regular season wrestling my, my senior year, um, wrestling with a uh, uh, very bad, shoulder injury that, that still bothers me to this day, which made it uh, impossible to go on and wrestle in college, so I began training not for competition, but just to stay in shape once I was out of high school, mm-hmm. and I did that through college, um, and you know, when I say just to stay in shape, I'm talking about, you know, to try to be really seriously strong. I was always interested in the strength aspect of it. Um, And and I'm not just talking about trying to stay in shape, but I'm talking about really serious, regular, heavy, progressive weight training. Mm -hmm. So I was doing that. I was following the teachings of Bradley J. Steiner, who was one of the most popular strength training authors in the world at that point in time and following the teachings of Arthur Jones, the inventor of the Nautilus training system. And Jones, leaving aside the whole Nautilus machine thing, and, you know, are are Nautilus machines better than barbells or not? You know, you can debate that back and forth. But the real point about Arthur Jones is that he emphasized hard work and and Mm -hmm. really focused on hard work and, you know, giving everything you had when you were in the gym. So, you know, I, I was focused on that. I was primarily reading Perry Raider's old Iron Man magazine. And I'm talking about the old Iron Man magazine, the way it was when Perry Raider had it. I'm not talking about any modern versions people may have seen, but it, a, much, a much different old school, old fashioned um, publication. Perry Raider, of course, being one of those people who was a tremendous success story, he trained for 10 years, 10 years, so unsuccessfully that at the end of that 10 years, at a height of 5'10", 5'11", he weighed 120 pounds as an adult man. Wow. Think about that. 10 years of strength training, he's 5'10", 5'11", he weighs 120 pounds. I, I, there's a, a photo of him, a very rare photo. I've seen it. His knees are literally bigger than his thighs. But what he learned was an exercise called the breathing squat, the 20-rep breathing squat. He started doing that with just an empty bar. That was all he could handle. And eventually worked up to doing 350 pounds for 10 reps in the squat. And by that time, two years later, he'd gained almost 100 pounds of
1: muscle. Wow. And it was,
3: you know, it, that transformed him not only physically, but it got him to saying, you know, what I want to do is I want to spread the message. I want to spread the word about this. And the best way to do that is by having a publication of my own, a magazine of my own. He worked as a janitor in a, in a um, local school and got one of those very old-fashioned mimeograph machines,
2: Mhm.
3: Really old thing, um, you know, where you you put the ink in, and you put the thing on on the roller, and you spun it around with a, a little metal handle. And um, mm-hmm. that, and and that was the start of Iron Man magazine. And he did it solely to share with people what you could accomplish with limited training programs and lots of heavy leg and back work. So. I was, you know, I was reading his magazine. I, I was staying away from the glossy magazines, the uh, the weeder publications, and the ones mm-hmm. that catered to the bodybuilding world, and you know, the ones that, that seemed to pretty pretty obviously have a lot of people who were using steroids, and and just in a kind of different place, kind of different, a much different place than I was in, even even as a young person. And um, so I'm, I'm training graduate from college, go to law school. I keep on training, but, but again, I'm, I'm not really doing it for competition of any, any, sort. I mean, you know, there was no more wrestling and you couldn't get into wrestling once you were out of high school. I mean, you know, there was, there was nothing to do. And, and again, my shoulder problem made the wrestling not a good idea. Yeah. And um, eventually I started to think, maybe what I'd like to do is try competing in powerlifting. And at about that same point in time, we started to see drug-free powerlifting competition come into Vogue. Uh, a man named Rich Peters he had an organization called NASA, the Natural Athlete Strength Association, and he was going all around the country promoting drug-free powerlifting bench press contests. And you can read about those in Paralithin USA magazine. And I started looking into that, and I thought, you know, if you are, you know, Brooks, if you're anti-steroids, as Mm -hmm. I was, I I very much am against steroid use. Never used. I never will. And, you know, if you're against that, then you should support drug-free powerlifting.
2: And Mm -hmm. you
3: not only should support it, but you should compete in it. So I started to train for powerlifting competition. I started to train harder and heavier than ever before, and I started to really focus on, you know, some, some real serious strength and power training methods. The other thing that happened at that point in time, and, and now we're talking about my mid to late 20s, the other mm-hmm. thing that happened I graduated from law school. I got a job in Louisville, Kentucky, as as a lawyer. So here I am, an associate attorney at a large law firm, which basically means you're doing grunt work, doing legal research, writing the briefs, you know, putting in 50, 60 hour weeks, seven day work weeks, you know, just doing all kinds of work to get the cases ready for your partners to to try and everything. I mean, be, being an associate attorney is a is a, is Not a fun job.
1: It doesn't sound like it.
3: No. And I didn't have a lot of time to train. And there was one particularly busy point. and, And all I could do was three workouts a week. And I couldn't even do a full workout. I had been doing three workouts a week, total body workouts,
2: Mm-hmm. Eight or nine
3: exercises covering all the major muscle groups, four or five sets in each, each workout, or I, I'm sorry, four or five sets of each exercise. You know, so I, I would do squats, calf raises, bench press, pull-ups or pull-downs or rowing, one of the three, some kind of overhead pressing movement, some kind of curl, tricep exercise, some kind of ab exercise. And, you know, each workout would be like 60 to 90 minutes or so. Mhm. Doing that, I got my bench up to three fifty five for a touch and go, I weighed about one eighty or so. Wasn't able to squat very much more than I could bench press. Wasn't deadlifting a whole lot more than that. Really couldn't make much progress and, and I was just kind of stuck in the same place and I had been for a number of years. But as I started to graduate towards the the heavier strength and power training. And as I got busy, what ha- was, as I got really busy at work, what happened was there was a guy named Frank Calta, C-A-L-T-A, a bodybuilder who came from Florida. He had a program called um, Rotation for Recuperation, where he was talking about train one day, rest a day, train a day, rest a day, train a day, rest day, a day, rest day, as opposed to a six-day-a-week Bodybuilding program? Uh huh. And I read about that and I thought, well, I'm so busy right now, I can't train a whole lot anyway, so why don't I give something like that a try? So I came up with what I called abbreviated training and divided workout training. I took my nine exercises and instead of doing nine exercises in every workout, I did four in one workout and five in the next workout. And I trained Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. So I'd do four exercises on Tuesday, five exercises on Thursday. Then I'd repeat the Tuesday workout on Saturday and, and then just, you know, continue the, the cycle like that. And I started to get stronger and I started to get more muscular and it seemed to be working. And I, I was still busy as heck at work. So I said, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut it to three different workouts. And in one workout, I'm going to do two or three exercises. And in the next one, I'm going to do two or three. And in the next one, I'm going to do two or three. And we're going to see what happens from, you know, doing that. So I eventually settled on a program that was something like, um, on Tuesday, I would do bench press and pull downs. And that was it. Mm -hmm. And on Thursday, I would do some kind of overhead pressing movement and deadlifts. And sometimes instead of regular deadlifts, I would do partial deadlifts on the power rack. And then on Saturday or Sunday, I would do squats, heavy curls, heavy close grip bench presses. That was all I would do. So I would do each exercise... Once a week, for a total of five, six, maybe seven sets. That was it. I was wow. using low, low reps, heavy weights, and you know, really pushing to add weight whenever I was able to do so. And the results of that program were absolutely astonishing. My my bench press went from 355, sign up to. Um, I eventually topped out a couple years later with a 407-pound competition bench press. That's a you know a dead stop at the chest at a national bench press contest. I won five national championships in the bench press. I won so many state and regional paralympic championships and, and bench press championships. I you know I don't know how many I won. I, I was extremely successful. And I also gained a lot of muscle. I, I went from 180 up to first, you know, I got up to like 195, then 198, 202, 205, 207, 210, and eventually finished up around 225 or so. So that's gain of about 45 pounds, 45 pounds. Using, using what I, had, you know, what what I've described as a an abbreviated training program with divided workouts and focusing on recovery and recuperation doing a lot of very, very heavy, very aggressive power rack training, heavy partials, that sort of thing. And it worked tremendously well.
1: That's amazing. It's also, it also sounds very counterintuitive, you know, but uh, the, the, what you're describing is very effective.
3: Well, it's counterintuitive in that no one would think that you can get better results by doing less training. Right. But what people don't understand is that strength training, in, in strength training, the results depend on the effort that you put into your heavy sets. The concentration you bring to it, the focus, the intensity, the passion, the enthusiasm, the determination, the desire. All of those things come together, and that's where the magic happens. It doesn't happen from just going to the gym and working out for two hours every day. You know, you can't go to the gym and just run through a workout for two hours And think that you're going to get anything at all just because you put two hours of time into the gym. It's not the amount of time, it's what you do with your time. And if you really go after it hard and aggressively, you don't need a whole lot of work to get good results. You also, the heavier you train and the harder you train, the more time you need need to recover. And, and that's a very critical thing. Recovering, recuperation are things that are, you know, almost under, almost completely understood by the aver, or misunderstood by the average trainee. They they don't pay attention to it at all. You know, I ask people, what do you do? What do you do for a recovery workout? What you know? What 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 do you do for recovery? And the answer the answer should be I rest. And instead, people say, oh well, on my recovery day. You know, I um, I do kettlebells for 20 or 30 minutes, and um, you know, I, I um, usually do a bodyweight workout because it gets a lot of blood flowing through the muscles. so I do about 30 minutes of that, and uh, I do some cardio, and uh, you know, I, I push a sled or I pull a sled or a prowler or I do hill sprints or you know whatever, and it's like hey, your recovery workout just became a regular workout. You, uh, you know, you, the, you don't recover by doing a workout. You recover by resting. And, and you know, that's a, a very misunderstood thing. People always think the more training they do, you know, the more often they hit, the better results they're going to get. And, and it's just not true. It's That's the, um, the strange thing about, heavy weight training compared to virtually every other type of physical training. You know, if you're a runner, you can, you know, if you gradually and and progressively and intelligently increase the distance that you run and the time of your runs, you know, most runners will, will tell you that, you know, distance runners will tell you that that is going to improve your results. Strength training doesn't work that way, and that's because the strength training the really heavy stuff is so hard and so demanding on the physical system. You just can't do a lot of it. You know, so you, you have to learn to progress, not by adding volume, but by doing other things that constitute progression. Adding weight, for example. Now, that's the simplest thing. Um, so anyhow, I, I got really good results from the program. And I was writing for Stuart McRoberts' Hard Gainer magazine. People were enjoying the ideas that I was sharing, and I decided to put them together into a book. And I wanted the book to be something that focused on old fashioned, old school ways of strength training. And I wanted to try to take old school things and make them cool. And the reason was the old-school athletes were drug-free. Yes. They did, not
1: use,
3: they did not use steroids. And yet they had amazing physical development and amazing strength. So what I wanted to do was to show people you don't need drugs because, you know, look what Arthur Saxon lifted almost 100 years ago. Completely drug free. Look at Max's physical development. Drug free. Again, almost 100 years ago. Look at Eugene Sandow. Look at John mm-hmm. Grimmick. Look at Steve Stanko. You know, go down the list, but there are a whole lot of people who were just tremendous physical specimens, both in terms of physical development, strength, power, and lifting ability. And they were drug-free, and they got great results because they did things differently than people do them now. So I wanted to put together a book that systematized what the old-timers used to do and put it together in a, you know, kind of a, a logical system. And I, I, I created a book that was one-stop shopping for old-school ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. Now, the title "Dinosaur Training" came to me in part because of my work as a lawyer, which sounds crazy, but I'll explain. That's it. interesting.
1: That's it. that's very interesting.
3: <laughs> yeah, I I was I, I was doing a lot of um, labor and employment law, in primarily employment discrimination, discrimination in the workplace, workplace harassment age discrimination, sex discrimination, race discrimination, things like that. That was, that was really my, my specialty as a lawyer. And there was a, a well-known case where there was a sales guy who was getting up there in years. I think he was probably in his forties, which, you know, being 62 seems pretty young now, Yes. you know, anyhow, there's, there's, there's there's this older guy. You know, 40 or 50 or whatever. He's a sales guy. And one of the younger sales guys says something like, Old Joe's been around since the days of the dinosaurs. Hmm. Okay. And later on, Old Joe gets fired. He gets laid off in a force reduction. The young guys stay there, but old Joe gets fired. And the question for the court was, what was the comment that old Joe had been around since the days of the dinosaurs evidence of age discrimination against old Joe? Okay. So mm-hmm. that was kind of, you know, that was something that I, you know, I, I read that case and I, I, would write about it in legal briefs, and you know we, we'd argue it because it was it was something that, that was out there uh, among employment lawyers, and and that just led me to think of the title of the book, Dinosaur Training, because it you know it was something that was old fashioned, old school, mm-hmm. as old as the dinosaurs, and you also have the other image of you know dinosaur being you know big strong, powerful animal and that's what a lot of people aspire to be through their strength training. They want to be big, strong, powerful animals. So it was a good title. It's
1: an excellent a title. title.
3: Yeah. But it you know, it's one of those things where it it didn't really come. it it did not come from the weight training or the strength training world. It it came from another world but you know you you make use of things. You you don't you don't have to learn everything in life from the physical culture or the strength training community. You know, there's there's more to life out there and you can learn a whole lot from other people, other disciplines, other learnings, other teachings.
1: I had background in uh, labor also and workforce development for many years. Uh I spent okay. maybe 35 years of my life uh, working in workforce development for the Department of Labor, for the Department of Employment, uh, for contractors from nonprofit organizations. So in addition to inviting you back on this show, because you're, you're a fascinating uh, individual, uh, uh, I'm, I'm planning on inviting you on one of our labor shows as, as well. <laughs> so pick your brains about labor issues.
3: We could, uh, we could do that. You'll, you'll, you'll have to ask me to tell, tell you the story though, about my grandfather. But we'll, okay. we'll save that one for the next show. Yeah, just make a note
1: of that. I'll make a note of it. So that, that is great. And the, the name stuck, and the images associated with the word dinosaur are very evocative of the things that you had said in everybody's mind. So, you know, you imagine yourself as, you know, this primal, uh, prehistoric force of uh, nature. So that, that, w- that was an excellent uh, choice, and it, it, uh, it, that proved uh, very successful.
3: It it, it 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 really did, and it was one of those crazy things where I, I I just did this because I've always had a passion about strength training and physical training and what it can do for someone, all of the wonderful things it can do, and I've I've always you know been a bit of a teacher, I suppose. And I wanted to teach and I wanted to share the information. And in my mind, writing a book about it was, was the way to do that. But what happened much to my surprise was the dinosaur training became a a worldwide phenomenon in, in the strength training community. And um, I, I, Ended up all ended of a sudden. In the addition up. to being a very busy lawyer, I had this unexpected side business selling this book about weightlifting or weight weight training. Which, yeah, you know that's that's kind of unusual for lawyers. Lawyers tend not to, <laughs> uh, you know, power, powerlifting and strength training and such was was kind of a blue collar sport back then, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- you know, I, I I think things have probably changed among the yuck, younger people. But you know, back then, if if you were a lawyer, you know, you you might jog, you might play tennis, you almost certainly played golf. And I didn't do any of those things. I lifted really heavy weights and I went to powerlifting contests. And, and it was it was really bizarre. Um, it it was not necessarily a good thing for a uh, for a young lawyer to be doing at, at a, a, a blue-chip premier law firm because it was so different than what other people did. Um, you know, I, I would go in and, you know, you'd meet a new client or you'd meet the other lawyer or you'd meet co-counsel or whatever, you know, and shake hands. And, uh, you know, I remember, you know, this, this funny look on people's faces when they felt the calluses on my hands. Right,
1: you know, mm-hmm. because if,
3: if you do serious weightlifting, you have calluses on your hands. Your hands don't feel like someone who never does weight training. And back then, uh, the, the the reaction was almost a visceral reaction from some people. They just didn't like that kind of thing. Well, um, lawyers are kind of strange strange ducks, anyhow. They um, they're very competitive, and I, I think in many respects very insecure. And a lot of people didn't like the fact that I, I was, you know, really strong and, you know, carrying a lot of muscle. They they, they didn't like that. Uh, they would much rather that I, I would go out on Saturday morning and play golf, but hopefully not play quite as well as they played. So, but you must, anyhow, you must was,
1: have been was a very good uh, lawyer because uh, uh, I know from my own personal experiences I was very good at workforce development so they tended to tolerate all my uh, eccentricities because uh, yeah, I was very different as well so you must have been a very good lawyer. <laughs> well
3: yeah yeah and that's, that's that's another conversation we'll probably have to have but yeah okay. they, they tolerated they tolerated what was viewed as an eccentricity. Um, but you know it certainly was not a selling point i mean it, if i had been <laughs> if i had been a five time national amateur golf champion mm-hmm. okay i i would have made five times the money as an attorney that i actually made because rich clients would have wanted to play golf on the weekends
2: Mm-hmm. I, I would
3: have been part of the foursome of you know the senior partner in the corner office, the two rich clients, and me playing golf. But you know there was no there was no senior partner in the corner office. There was no rich client who wanted to go to the gym and do heavy squats.
1: Right. Good point. You know,
3: so it was, yeah, you know it was it was it was a different thing. Guy guy named Dick Connor. Um, who at that point in time was the owner of a really great gym in Evansville, Indiana, called the Pit? Great name. <laughs> yes. Look, look, look it up online. They have this great logo of like a guy in a a um, execution a black executioner's mask. <laughs> <laughs> it's old. It's old school, man. But Dick Connor once once. Said to me, said, um, you're a giraffe. I said, what are what? you talking about?
2: <laughs> what
3: a giraffe! I said, my neck's not real long. You know, it's, it's thick, but it's not long. And, and he said, no, you're, you're you're a giraffe because you you walk down the street and you're not like the other animals because you're you're this power guy but you're also a lawyer so you're not like a power and you're not like a lawyer so you're different you're a giraffe and I said well I, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment thank you Dick. <laughs> so that was the um, that was the genesis of the dinosaur training book I, I just did it to try to share information with people and it took off in ways that I, I never imagined and ten years later, I, I continued my interest in this. I, I was writing other books and courses and doing newsletters, strength training newsletters, things like that. And the, um, the dinosaur business, as I came to call it, became, you know, more and more successful. And uh, the law business was not making me happy um, you know, it, you can make a lot of money, but, you know, you're not necessarily doing a lot of good for people or good for the world. And it wasn't satisfying. It wasn't satisfying my soul. And, you know, after a lot of long conversations with my wife, who was very supportive about this, um, I uh, basically did early retirement from the practice of life, turned my resignation in. And uh, and left the practice and devoted all of my time, full time, to, to writing books and courses and and doing my daily emails at the Dinosaur Training website and, and getting the, uh, you know, doing everything I can to get the word out about what I call old school, sane, sensible, common sense strength training. Strength training mm-hmm. and, and physical training physical culture
1: and in so doing you've enriched the lives of uh, very many uh, people so i'm glad you made that decision
3: well uh, thank you I I, I I appreciate that that that's what i that's what i was trying to do was you know you, you get to a point in your life where you know you think okay you know what have i done what do I want to do? How do I want to be remembered? And you know, you really are never particularly remembered as a lawyer. Um, you know, your your clients don't remember what you did for them twenty or thirty years earlier. the The cases that you argued so vehemently twenty or thirty years ago are old cases that don't get cited in the legal memos anymore, or, you know, not, not cited very often perhaps. And you, and you really end up perhaps not having changed things as much as you wished when you were young and idealistic. And perhaps you haven't, you know, maybe, maybe you've done a lot of good for people, maybe not. Um, I was a defense attorney, so basically my job was to keep rich people rich, Rich companies rich and you know I don't think that's a very soul satisfying assignment. but I'll tell you what if you do something that changes someone's life through physical training, that's a pretty satisfying thing and, and it certainly it's certainly something that you would want to be remembered for at least I would want to be remembered for that.
1: And on those powerful words, our journey comes uh, to an end for today. I'm definitely inviting you back. We haven't even scratched uh, the surface yet. Um, how can folks uh, d- d- um, access all the wonderful things you're doing with the dinosaur training?
3: Well, the, the best way to do it is to go to my website. I'm at That's www.brookskubic.com dot com and sign up for my daily email training tips and newsletters I which is awesome out, thank you thank you i you know i put out a couple a day and um you know go go to the products page at the website i've got hard copy books and courses remember i started this in 1996 okay before the internet uh, but you know we've got hard copy books and courses we've got pdf books and courses and, of course, in the modern age, the current age, we, um, we have Kindle books. I've got, like, probably 30 titles in the Kindle library right now, a number of which have been Kindle number ones in their category. Um, so we've got a lot of information out there, and, and it's, we're trying to do our best to make it user-friendly. You know, if people want hard copy, we can accommodate that. If they prefer PDF, we can do that. If they can, If they like Kindle, we can do that. So you know we're doing everything we can to get the information out there. And the idea is to to help teach people to train themselves and to, to give them the tools they need and the motivation that they need. But the motivation is critical. you know that it's, it's yes, motivation, inspiration, it's ninety percent of the battle sometimes.
1: What would you suggest is the first uh, book that people start with uh, if they want to uh, um, start doing dinosaur training?
3: If they're younger trainees, um, teens, 20s, 30s, Dinosaur Training, Lost Secrets of Strength and Development is a great place to start. Older trainees, 35, 40 and up, should read uh, gray hair and black iron Um, and any of my Kindle training books are are a terrific resource I've I've got um, I've got three real nice um, courses Dinosaur Training Secrets Volume 1 Dinosaur Training Secrets Volume 2 Dinosaur Training Secrets Volume 3 really if you put all of them together they're kind of like and updated current thinking on critical topics about building strength and muscle. And the neat thing is those three are available either in hard copy, PDF, or Kindle. Mm -hmm. So wherever, wherever you are in the world, however you like to read your strength information, those are real good places to start.
1: Thanks again, Brooks. I'm looking forward to our next uh, conversation. And uh, no need to wish you success in all you're doing. You're doing awesome, and and you're very successful. So uh, thank you very much for what you have brought to our world, and I'm looking forward to all the things that you continue to bring to our world.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, It's been a pleasure, and I really appreciate it. Good night, Hercules.
1: Good night. Uh, We're going to take a brief music break and listen to Bone Poets Orchestras Evolve, and then we'll be back for Champions of Arcadia, a new show. of Heroes. This is your host, Hercules Invictus, and tonight I am honored to announce a new show, Champions of Arcadia. Um, as Zion of Mount Olympus, I will be recognizing and celebrating individuals, initiatives, and organizations which have made or are making a significant contribution toward reclaiming and or defending the green. And by the green, I mean natural environment and animal life in our community. And guests sometimes will be straying uh, far beyond uh, Tenafly, New Jersey, and uh, speaking to people from other parts of uh, uh, the world. I am honored also to announce that our first guest is Julie O'Connor, who is a very active activist uh, here in Tenafly and beyond. And she was one of the first uh, people I uh, met in Tenafly who befriended me. So I'm grateful for that as well. Greetings and welcome, Julie. How are you?
4: I'm well, and thank you for having me on the show tonight.
1: Well, you're awesome. How can I not have you on the show? And you're, you're very active and passionate about uh, animal and uh, nature uh, causes. Uh, before we get to those, though, um, can you share a little bit about your journey uh, and how did you become aware of uh, your passion uh, for nature and um, the steps that brought you to where you currently are? Uh,
4: well, it it definitely started when I was a child. Um, I remembered... Um, There were campaigns that I would see as a youngster um, back in the, I guess I would have been the 80s, and uh, they were talking about the Canadian seal hunt and things like that, things that unfortunately are today even going on. But uh, I remember seeing campaigns and and being very, you know,
0: I always loved
4: animals, so I always wanted to defend them. Uh, And and also I I personally remember uh, in about sixth grade, I mm-hmm. heard about a, a a program where the United States Department of Agriculture was uh, going to be branding uh, cattle on the face uh, to make them more easily identified from one ranch to another. They were going to allow face branding. And uh, on the face of the animal, there's a bundle of nerves. So I remember reading about that in the paper and how there was uh, obviously some campaign against it. And at the time, at At 12 years old in sixth grade, I um, had started a petition (laughs) Uh, with my uh, elementary school there. And I got other kids to sign it, and my parents really helped encourage me. And they had... um, had me send, believe it or not, a, a telegram <laughs> to the United okay. States Department of Agriculture back in the day. And, um, yeah, so I'm dating myself a little bit. Uh, and uh, so we did a few of these actions, and as luck would have it, the USDA had reversed a course on that policy. So uh, I learned very young that I could be active for this cause and then, effect, change. So then I was really hooked. So that was like my first real memory of doing something for animals, and I was 12. And then I, because it worked, and then I was like, oh, I can I can use my voice for the animals. It doesn't matter my age. And then that's what I always kept doing. And then, you know, where, to where I'm at right now is I'm, I'm the regional director of the League of Humane Voters of New Jersey, um, and that is Uh, You know, a group of people who, you know, is dedicated, it's nonpartisan, but dedicated to having legislators introduce and vote for pro-animal legislation and to get animal-friendly legislators uh, in our government. So the League of Humane Voters in New Jersey, it's definitely a big passion of
1: mine. And I placed the link to that on uh, Facebook. Uh, The League of Humane Voters. And I remember when I first came to Tentafly and I had a little bit more time uh, than I have now, uh, I went uh, with you to uh, Valerie Huddle's office uh, to discuss uh, the bow hunting that – Um, I hear they're still uh, talking about that, but back then I first became aware of uh, people wanting to shoot bows near houses in Bergen County, and uh, that's insane. Uh, So uh, I joined uh, that, and then I went to a few other things uh, with Bijou's Law and several other initiatives. So um, I saw in the newspaper that the hunting issue is back.
4: Yeah, no, thank you for the segue actually, uh Hercules. I appreciate it. Uh so I I read that same article as well. That was a, I I saw it just last week in that PASCAC Valley Press I think it was and yes. it talks about a regional uh they wanna they they have a an Inglewood Deer Task Force. It is a new mayor now, we should be aware. At the time it was Valerie Huddle's husband,
2: husband,
4: yeah, uh, yeah, and then now we have Mayor Wild, um, and uh, he has led a resident in Englewood start a deer task force, and um, unfortunately, to your point, yeah, we're we're going to have to do the re-education, uh, and to that end, as I was reading in the paper, on July, on June fifth, they're hosting this. Um, the Division of Fish and Wildlife to come and talk about uh, deer management. And unfortunately, I'll tell your listeners that when the Division of Fish and Wildlife comes, they come for one reason, as they were trying those years back when you went to the meeting with me. They only want to talk about uh, bringing hunting to communities, and like you say, densely populated areas like our area it's it's, it's stunning uh, but that's all the division of fish and wildlife wants to do because they don't have science they're not unbiased actors behind this they are um, their budgets come from the sale of hunting licenses and they're very closely linked to ammunition manufacturers and and that industry and the hunting industry so On June 5th, when they present at the uh, Inglewood Courthouse, uh, we are actually, uh, so this is my new announcement, we're going to be out front as people are going in, and some of us are going to attend the meeting as well, uh, talking about um, non-lethal options and how that's the only uh, interaction with deer that we want, not only for the deer safety but for our own safety. Uh, So we're going to have a rally on June 5th, outside of that Division of Fish and Wildlife presentation, that's the Inglewood Courthouse that's going to be 73 South Van Brunt in Inglewood. And I would invite any person who cares about animals and their own family's safety who lives anywhere in Bergen County to please attend, uh, because this really matters. You know, yes, it does. Uh, Saddle, Saddle River uh, started... A deer hunt uh, this past year um this past season they went against for years uh, you know their own townspeople have uh, on on resolution said they they did not want deer hunting they did not favor deer hunting and um, with that the the council completely ignored the the will of their own residents and um, they introduced they became the first and only town to have deer hunting come into Bergen County. And with that, as you could tell in the article, there's there's certain, uh, you know, nefarious actors in different communities who think that, oh, now the floodgates are opening. So we have to continue to, uh, you know, not only have the meetings like we did those years back, but also just re-educate the public. You don't want a high-powered, a high-powered weaponry, weaponry in your backyard, in your backyard. No. And you also have to realize that when it comes to deer management, uh, the second that they introduce the hunt, they know that they uh, can make money off of these communities for years to come because the hunt uh, will create a vacuum effect for the deer and the does will give birth in the following years to t- twins and triplets that's called the compensatory rebound effect, and that's because they have more access to food, and then they're going to produce more babies, so then more deer will always fill in the vacuum. Um, So, you know, it does not work. Uh, It endangers the community, and there are absolutely non-lethal proven methods that work, uh, and we need to make sure that any... Uh, task force or any people that say they're concerned about a population issue, they need to
1: uh,
4: avail themselves of the non-lethal uh, presentation that that our group gives, as well as all of the solutions that we have. But when you call in Division of Fish and Wildlife, uh, they're only going to promote hunting because they said there's a uh, monetary interest in doing so. Um, so, yes, we... I noticed that in the paper, and I am responding, my group, because uh, we're going to be out there on June 5th. Uh, I don't want my community to turn into a, a killing field, and I, and I am stunned uh, to not only have, the, have to have the conversation once, but to have it, you know, multiple times. It should be the type of thing that is a true non-starter, uh, yet uh, you have to always be vigilant with uh, when it comes to... to Speaking for the innocent, because there's there's forces that work against them.
1: <laughs> oh, most certainly so. And uh, um, I now again I have uh, time, so I can apply it again towards uh, uh, protecting uh, these animals, because there are uh, non-lethal ways of, of handling uh, um, the fact that we're sharing space with them now uh, more. And uh, as you pointed out, that uh, basically hunting them down only increases uh, their rate of breeding. So you keep perpetuating the problem uh, rather than uh, solving it. So it's not really management. It's uh, it's creating a problem that you're then, you know, addressing in a particular way that profits somebody else.
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, and, you can, and the proof is in the pudding because you could look at communities like Essex County, uh, you know, well past now a decade uh of of deer hunting, you know costing taxpayers, costing of course uh even in the way of when they have to close down parks, they use the police to do that um you know as if the police force you know shouldn't be having better use of their time, like I say, they're over ten years, and they you know these division of fish and wildlife people come in and say, "Oh, we've got a few year plan for you we've got a five-year plan well i mean we we've got communities in their 10th 20th year of deer management plans which you know again like you say creating the problem but it just speaks to your point um so yeah let's let's not let that happen in bergen county i'm glad you glad you caught that in the paper and glad i have the opportunity to talk about our next steps you know on your show
1: Yes, uh, I, I, I'm making now a monthly show to start, and then we're going to try to increase it to be more than uh, monthly. I'm adding another day soon, so uh, I'll be able to make this a monthly show. And I'm in contact with many, like, local activists, uh, such as yourself. And uh, so there's guests who will be coming on and sharing information uh, continuously. Uh, if you have anything you'd like me to post on uh, my website, uh, uh, timeline on social media. I'll, I will gladly do so to inform people of uh, what's going on. Um, and also I'll mention that on the show, you know, I'll do updates. Um, so, uh, and also I'll get involved. I don't know what my calendar is like for June 5th uh, because I'm getting like booked further and further into the future with things. Uh, but if I'm free June 5th, I will definitely be there. Uh, and if not, I will let people know that it's there. <laughs> <laughs> so did uh um, thank yeah, you so and I'm, gonna I'm
4: getting it set up as we speak, so we are gonna uh i'll I'll get that link to you as i as my plans come together.
1: And also I started writing. I've been published in a bunch of anthologies, uh, but I started writing uh, articles on uh, this topic, too, and sending them out, you know. uh, um, So very soon those will start appearing. I'm going to be writing letters to the editor. So, again, I've always felt very passionately about this, and now I have a little bit uh, more time so I can put that time and energy towards uh, this cause. So I'm very happy that uh, everything came together um, you know, around now. And, I'm, I, again, I'm very honored that uh, uh, you're launching this new show because, uh, again, you're one of the first people I met in Tenafly, and uh, you're awesome. Thank you.
4: And, Thank you. and, actually, now that I know that you caught up with the, um, uh, the actual article, I, I'll tell your listenership that my letter in response to that article uh, should be uh, in this week's uh, paper. So, uh, so so, hopefully uh, anyone who reads that weekly paper will see my uh, response as well as uh, another very good uh, animal lover out of Englewood as well because uh, you know, these things need to be answered as quickly as possible. You know. Thank
1: you. And they archive the uh, newspapers uh, now. Like a week later, they're online uh, mm. and they can be linked to. So, uh, even so, I can
4: send those links as well, then.
1: Yes, for people who are outside our area who, because what we're doing here applies anywhere and everywhere. Uh, So, the information is like one of the guests I have on my list is uh, from the Cougar Fund um, out west. And uh, folks might say we don't have cougar problems here, but we do have uh, big cats. And enough people I've spoken to have spotted them regularly. Uh, that even though uh, Animal experts tell us that uh, No, they were hunted to extinction There are enough sightings that I hear Continually uh, to know that they're here So I'm going to have somebody on to tell us what to do If you happen to live in like northwestern New Jersey where I heard a lot of these stories uh, And encounter one
4: Wow Alright Well I, I've never uh, I've never Encountered a big cat myself But uh, like, Like you say all of these we can all learn from from the interactions that each of us is having, like you say, across the across the country. And unfortunately, I, I would say to that point that many of the same dynamics that we encounter here with the quote unquote wildlife management and you know the state or the division or any of those governing bodies it really does play out almost exactly the same regardless of the animal and regardless of the state it's like it it's it's a lousy situation for animals because it it is very these groups are very linked into industry hunting groups and uh they don't really care about you know uh solutions that are um, effective and humane they just want to perpetuate a hunting culture. This in a time when you know hunting num- numbers of hunters are on the decline. So uh, th- this is the other strange thing about it. But uh, and and also in a time where we're more aware of violence generally and weapons in communities, it's definitely not the side. You should be fighting for in 2019, <laughs> You know? but, but very, very I, I'm sure point. you'll have a listenership across the country who, who says, "Yeah, that sounds like my state," or "Yeah, that sounds like my the anim- Fill in the animal. You know what I mean? So I'm, yeah, it seems to be a a refrain, unfortunately.
1: Well, we have we have a major challenge uh, before us, but uh, we will succeed.
4: Oh yes, yes.
1: Now, how can somebody get uh, involved with the League of Humane uh, Voters? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the organization and uh, what they do and how people can uh, become involved?
4: Right. So um, I believe I believe you said you had a link to your um, uh, some of your pages, uh, but I, I would tell anyone to go to L-O-H-V, that stands for League of Humane Voters, nj l-o-h-v-n-j dot org uh, because when you go there you'll see uh, you know our mission which is to create uh, you know the largest voting block of, uh, an- of animal friendly voters uh, again we're nonpartisan and we lobby for animal friendly legislation promote animal friendly politicians and on that page, you'll see a Join Us button. Uh, and on that button, uh, if you fill in your information, it lets our database put you in the, um, w- within the, the district that you're in. And so that allows us to contact you when we need you to contact your individual um, state senator or assembly people. And so the way it works in New Jersey to pass our legislation or any legislation, you would want co-sponsors onto certain bills, and then you want them to vote for the bills. So the League of Humane Voters mobilizes during those stages. So when we ask you to uh, contact your the office of your legislator, uh, you know, please do. And also, you know, if you do something like make a phone call to a legislator's office, that one person represents a lot of voters because they know that the energy or effort that it took to pick up the phone and dial the office is like representative of all the people who didn't pick up the phone. So just, you know, your, your actions can mean quite a lot. They represent even more than just you picking up the phone. Uh, So that's what we do. The other thing we have to do, unfortunately, is we have to stop stop. bad legislation. And so you would get alerts about telling your legislators to vote no on something. Uh, And and that happens, you know, a a frequent amount. Uh, Although we don't bombard you, but I would say that uh, if you – Join, you'll be in the loop as to what's happening for animals. Um, I, I would say currently, if any of your listenership is in Bergen County, I would say that, you know, we're writing an alert right now, just having people please talk to their uh, town council, write a quick email to their mayor, and any town that you're in, just saying that you uh, do not want a lethal uh, deer management plan you don't want to hunt you don't want to deer hunt just quick thing quick note just let them know that you're there because you know the people who come in to talk to them might be the ones who do want deer hunting so that would be an action i'd tell everyone to take Um, but i would say that league of Union voters tries to do exactly that we have a lot of well-meaning people, and we try to organize us all behind common pro-animal goals. Um, our greatest achievement arguably uh, could be the passage of uh, and the signing into law of something called Nosey's Law, which was named after a, an elephant named Nosey who was trapped for years traveling. Uh, giving elephant rides in, in a circus, uh, uh, one of those traveling circuses, uh, and she was you know, very ill, had arthritis, uh, obviously um, hurt with a bull hook, which is the training device they use. So this this law was named after her. Her name was Nosy. And uh, League of Humane Voters started the effort in New Jersey of getting the very first traveling animal, traveling wild or an exotic animal, uh, circus ban. We count mm-hmm. we got that passed on county parks for Bergen County parks. So one year we had a, it was called Cole Brothers Circus, and they were at the Overpeck County Park, and when we learned about that and protested there, uh, we started. The lobbying efforts to ban uh, our county parks from getting a, a wild animal circus again when we eventually got that passed by our county freeholders uh, that was the first law on record in New Jersey for that ban because there's uh-huh. a lot of cruelty involved and then from there uh, we were able to use that language, a template of that bill that we did in Bergen County uh, to then go to other communities, and we had at least six uh, towns and municipalities and counties under our belt, and that's exactly how the the fire started. And um, so League of Humane Voters in New Jersey were very proud of that, and then eventually it got to, with the other animal organizations helping in the efforts as the, as the movement got bigger, um we got, we got a, the statewide ban, and uh that was signed into law this past year, uh December uh, 2018. So it was enormously exciting uh and uh so that's that's an example of a of a wonderful achievement that came from a lot of blood, sweat and tears, but on the local level and uh that's why I because you never know where that'll go and that's why I really implore people to you want to get involved locally so we happen to start the hour talking about a deer hunt uh but it could be any animal issue let your mayor let your council know what you're thinking and what you care about for animals because on the local level they're going to give you their time and uh then you would be surprised at how much you can accomplish. That squeaky wheel, and <laughs> League of Humane Voters in yeah. New Jersey will help you. So I, I would just say, you know, join on the website, and uh, it's a great organization. Uh, also, the Animal Protection League of New Jersey, um, that is a, a another organization that is not a lobby organization, but it is a a, a wonderful uh, place to go to learn about all sorts of animal issues within uh, New Jersey. It's called Animal Protection League in New Jersey. And, you know, they have uh, tabs on their website where you could read about feral cats and cat colonies. Uh, if you're a cat person, um, you can learn about the bear issue. And, unfortunately, New Jersey is a still... Um, in the throes of a bear hunt and we would like Governor Murphy to stop the bear hunt. Uh and you could read up a lot on the bear hunt, uh on the Animal Protection League in New Jersey. Uh we talked about deer. Uh but any animal that that you have a particular affinity for, whether it's the wildlife or the pet, uh there are actions that that everyone can take and and you're never too young, and you're never too old. So <laughs> uh, definitely I, I definitely think that's important.
1: And so for those who don't have um, a lot of time, uh, by joining your email list, they'll be made aware of uh, different issues and different legislation where all they would really have to do is make a few short uh, telephone calls to the right uh, people. So somebody can do a lot of good even if they don't have a lot of time.
4: Very well said. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think people would be surprised, especially if they're a particularly active person. I think they'd be surprised if they step out of the bubble for a second and they realize that most, the overwhelming majority of people really aren't taking any actions on anything uh, because they're just trying to get through the day and uh, that's all the chores they might have. So for those of us who take just the small actions, we could really rise to the top of the pile quite quickly. Uh, You get involved uh, just in that way of making the phone call, uh, sending the emails, but um, maybe writing that letter to the editor with a few talking points. Uh, It it makes a tremendous difference, because not only were you and I reading that article, I can assure you every mayor around here was reading that article, and they're going to read any follow-up. And guess what? If the newspaper didn't get any sort of response, then the mayors know that they can introduce the deer hunt, and nobody's going to be, no one's upset enough about it, I guess. Because no one took any action, no one called me, no one emailed me. So you know, you got to think of how they would think, uh, and 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 think. Okay, well, if I just got to take this little action, it'll make all the difference. Then uh, it's definitely worth it for the animals and and for ourselves and our own humanity. You know, it's very. I'm very glad you're deciding to. Um, you know, you added this element of your show because. I do think it goes to the larger uh, picture of, you know, who are we and how are we being stewards of our planet. And there's been such uh, dangerous and and shameful decision-making when it comes to uh, the environment on a national level. Uh, And then when you see what, what decisions are made locally, you got to wonder, you know, as humans who has the power to to do so much destruction, you know, who who are we as a species, and are we we don't see ourselves as connected to the the uh, planet Earth, and that is only going to end in a very bad way. So I think it's a great element to. People stop, consider these things. Not everybody does, but it really matters.
1: Oh, I I agree with you 100%. It it matters a lot. Uh, And uh, um, this is a time when we're being told by uh, the world's leading scientists that we have about a dozen years uh, left when, if we do nothing, we're going to enter a point where we can't do anything. So... Um, that's something that we really need to, regardless of what our stance is on uh, uh, scientists, um, we have to take what they're saying seriously, otherwise they wouldn't have been saying it. And uh, uh, we have to do what we can do. Otherwise, what type of world are we leaving future generations uh, to live in?
4: Yes, and actually actually that UN report that came out uh, giving those estimates that you were referring to, a very comprehensive UN science report about climate change and it also did mention, uh, you know, the role of factory farming and high-intensity animal agriculture and the emissions, you know, that uh, comes from the methane and, of course, the, the impact with the over grazing. So, you know, even knowing the actions that we can take individually to minimize it. Maybe it's reducing your own personal meat consumption. Um, and also the actions we should be pushing legislators to do, which is a, a larger scale approach to things, you know, more tree planting programs and whatever. We must, uh, rather than move in the direction of let's rid our space of all the wildlife. In fact, we should be doing the opposite, which is how we live in in tandem and uh, in accordance with uh, nature. And, and it would be better for us because this idea of uh, exerting dominion over uh, animals uh, and the environment is not working out well, you know. When I'm scraping ice off my car in the morning, <laughs> and it's almost April, it's almost <laughs> May, or Uh but but also clearly the scientists, you know, are coming out with quite frightening reports. Uh, so, but I think we can only bury our head in the sand until until you suffocate. So,
1: a horrible image, but but very true, unfortunately. <laughs> Just came to me. I
4: just thought of it. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense.
1: <laughs> That's like what we do. <laughs> now, many people that uh, I speak to um, are going through periods where they're looking for meaning uh, in their uh, life, and uh, they're having a difficult time with that. And uh, I'm personally addressing that through my uh, uh, work at the Creskill Library. I- I'm doing like a lot of uh, uh, workshops and we're uh, setting up uh, all sorts of events that help people determine what their passion and their purpose is. But what I recommend to people uh, until they discover what it is for them, and they'll, they'll know what it is as soon as they find it, and they'll find that they've no, always known what it is, but that's the journey. Um, but I recommend them in, in the meanwhile to find something that they care about uh, and do something about that. And that'll lead them there, uh, eventually. And, uh, a lot of people do care about animals, uh, and a lot of people do care about, uh, the environment, uh, in a general kind of way. And if they get involved, they'll, they I, I believe that they will find empowerment because they will see that, uh, there is a lot that we can do as individuals. And, um, Being an individual citizen is a very powerful thing because you can express your opinion, you can make your thoughts known uh, to the people who are governing. And as you said, if enough people share what they're thinking and what they're feeling, it will influence uh, the people who are governing because uh, these are their voters, And not all voters, as you pointed out, will express anything. So for each person who actually takes the time and the energy to express something or to do something, it represents a given number. And they've studied that. That's a a science to them. Um, I remember when I first got involved in cable TV, uh, in uh, like the public access TV decades ago, uh, that's how they calculated their their viewership by how many calls they got, how many letters they got. You know, each one represented a number, and that's how they determined how many viewers they had.
4: Yeah, it, yeah, that's it, what it, I've always heard as well. So I'm glad to get that confirmed. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, it it doesn't take too much effort, but if if you're working with people who are looking for a sense of satisfaction and want to do more than make a few phone calls. I'll tell you, our organization is always looking for people who can help us at these tabling events on weekends. Uh, If anybody went to the Earth Day Festival, uh, that was this. Oh, you were there. So you saw a lot of my people. Uh, We had a Demarest Nature Center was set up next to uh, the bear group. Um, mm-hmm. Which was also shared by you know animal protection animal uh, sorry animal protection league and Um, P L N J they're the same the bear group is a shoot off of A P L N J and so you know that that's a group of activists they they table all throughout every weekend because the very next day uh, that group was at uh the the van son earth day party for the earth, party for the planet which was on Sunday so
2: mm-hmm.
4: uh we if if you have listeners who are looking to get more involved we can always use people to help us staff tables for a couple hours uh and like we mentioned letters but you can get as involved as you want or or as little as you want but if you did have some time and you're looking for a purpose uh, there's really nothing more empowering than making a connection and teaching someone something about something you care about. You know, when I do these events and I see, uh, you know, a family come up with the kids and they oh, I never thought about that, oh, I didn't realize that, or I'm going to go tweet, you know, to the governor about stopping the bear hunt right now. I mean, then you know you're making a difference. You're helping create a compassionate future. So it, it is one of the most empowering things you can do is taking the actions, getting involved with the cause, and um, also just part of, just a little bit of information, because I heard what you were saying about how you run that topic at, out of the Cresco Library.
2: Yes. Um,
4: there's many studies on the uh, power of, being in nature uh, and how that really does lift the spirit and I studied some of that um, a lot of us suffer from something called the nature deficit disorder uh, yeah. which is yeah because a lot of especially the youngsters are not in uh they're 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 not in nature much at all they're in school and they go home and play video games uh it actually creates a more stressed individual and um not connected. So, mm-hmm. um we're lucky around here to have the Demarest Nature Center, uh Tenafly Nature Center, uh different nature centers and uh we can you can always get involved. Oh, they're always looking for volunteers, clean up days, things like that. So, I I really do thank you or hit the nail on the head is people can make a tremendous difference for animals. And in another study of just of, of young people aged three to twelve, they did a study of how many. The Humane Society of the United States commissioned this. How many children wanted to have a pet? And they came to ninety-five percent wanted to wow. have a pet. And that that's like no study really has those universal results. It does show a bit the natural link between children and animals, which again, children become adults. So, for overwhelming majority of us, we're in, we were interested in animals. We have an affinity to animals. You know, they do share the planet with us. So it's so yes, if if you have sympathy or empathy for even one particular type of animal, I guarantee you. If you work to to help that animal in some way, you're gonna feel like you reached your purpose, preparing the world that way.
1: Very powerfully uh, said and true. Now, on future shows, uh, we're gonna have uh, Mark and Kim uh, Nagelhout, Oh, from Nature
4: Center, yes.
1: Angie Metzger, so. All people you know. So the message will get uh, out there. And uh, I I spoke at uh, um, some of the tables, and I left uh, my card and gathered people's cards. So I will be calling those people as well, the ones who wanted to speak about this. Um, So uh, um, I would like to work with you on pulling all this uh, together. This way it it coordinates uh, very well. Uh, So uh, we'll be exchanging lots of emails in the days to come.
4: Yes, and I I just – I know that um, Angie Mettler and Mark and Kim with their Demarest Nature Center experience, and they're also involved with League of Humane Voters as well very much. Uh, They're going to be joining me uh, with planning our our best uh, way to reach different communities in Bergen County. Regarding the deer hunt, they've been quite active uh, with Saddle River and uh, different towns in the county, uh, and so I, we have a great team, and, and I'm so glad that you're, you know, back uh, on board because, uh, you know, we we can definitely use your your voice and your power. So,
1: you've you got it. And if you have literature, because I I found that uh, whenever I do something, I always uh, leave literature, if I can, uh, of things that I'm involved with, either directly or indirectly, that I believe in. So if you have, like, uh, cards or leaflets or flyers or anything like that um, where I give talks or where I do workshops, I could definitely make sure that uh, they get some.
4: Yes, I, I had done a tabling uh, for Demarest Nature Center's Oktoberfest actually um this past year for League of Humane Voters and I, I believe I have a a number of nice League of Humane Voters flyers. Um so I, I'll get those to you and some sheets about the bear hunt facts and um you know we'd we'd like to another campaign is we'd like to reverse um a, a rule change that the division did, uh, division of Fish and Wildlife again, uh, where they're allowing body gripping traps uh, for animals, you know, like fur trapping. Uh, mm-hmm. So, we have some fact sheets on those about about writing to different people to to reverse those. Uh, but the governor needs to hear from uh, a lot of a lot of animal lovers and keep hearing from us. Uh, so that he can reverse and uh, some of these terrible rules, and then also take action, because we're already in the second year of his administration. So we we like some action on these things, <laughs> and um, yeah, you know, it, it is it's his time. Uh, but uh, but but yes, I can get you. Uh, I'll go through my last tabling thing and see what I can give you so you could put out some of our latest campaigns. That'd be great. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Um, and you've spoken about if people have passions for like a, uh, um, other animals that aren't considered wild animals, like let's say somebody has a passion for cats or dogs. I have a passion for both, but that's beside the point. Uh, what can they do uh, within uh, the organized structures that you mentioned uh, to do more for like stray cats or you know for uh, for dogs?
4: So uh, within the Animal Protection League of New Jersey's website, um, they they definitely have information on cat colonies and uh, feeding cat colonies and doing something called trap neuter release or Mm
2: -hmm. commonly
4: referred to as tnr and you might um look at areas where you can where you spot some strays and maybe you want to get involved with trapping the strays and taking them to get fixed and releasing them because a lot of times a feral cat isn't really uh, able to be made a pet if they're mm-hmm. an adult, because they're wild. Um, so they have information on TNR. Uh, for uh, dog and, and, and cats, obviously the main issue with that is overpopulation. And um, so working with uh, groups to do sterilizing, The fostering, uh, but also the animal shelters. We have a few. I know in town we have smaller rescue groups, and then we have the Bergen County Animal Shelter is our county one, and they're always looking for people who not only could come in and you know give the animals some affection, some walks, some socialization, but also. People who can, um, you know, help them be ambassadors and remind people that when it's time for them to get a new animal, if they're in the mood, that they should adopt and not buy uh, from a pet store because that promotes, like, overpopulation. And, you know, so definitely in the cat and dog issue, um, you know, millions and millions of animals are killed each year. Because there are not enough homes, so that is something that we really want uh, to would ideally bring that number to zero. So, so there are a lot of actions people can take if that's what they're passionate about. Always spay and neuter your animals as well. And uh, I, I'm
1: sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, th- I said very good advice.
4: Yeah, and I I, I would say that um, people would be surprised at how many uh, animals there are that need homes that is an overpopulation issue. So we think of cats and dogs, but, you know, there are bunny rabbits and even hamsters that are up for adoption, you know, through the sh- animal shelters. So I know I had adopted two hamsters through a rescue group uh, because I knew I wasn't going to go buy a hamster, and sure enough, Uh there were groups with, you know, rescue hamsters. So uh, definitely adopt, don't shop uh, is the old adage. And like I said, if you want to get involved with feeding colonies of animals like cats, um, then that's definitely something you can learn about. But um, the, the, the groups to go to, if, if you go to Animal Protection League in New, of New Jersey, uh, as well as, like I said, the legislative actions through League of Humane Voters in New Jersey, they're great places to start. Uh, but also, if you are interested in animal rescue, your town might have small groups, Uh, Like we do in Tenafly, we have smaller rescue groups that set up very nice festivals here. Uh, But your county will have a shelter, your state will have resources as well. Um, But you know, when if I could just go back briefly to when you said about people finding their purpose, I you know I'm a school teacher by day, and uh, I knew that helping animals was really a, a primary mission of mine in my life. And I went back to school and got my PhD uh, in studying about the intersection of education, educating young people, and the power of animals. And that's how I knew the statistic about you know 95% of children wanted to even have a pet. What I realized is children really do have a connection to animals, so for mm-hmm. them, you know, I realized as an educator, as a teacher, that if my lessons infused animals and kindness to animals, even if I was teaching a math lesson or I was teaching an English lesson, if my lessons uh incorporated those elements, which is called humane education that's teaching kindness to animals, called humane education. When I did that, students were much more motivated to learn and engaged Mm -hmm. in the lessons. So that was the basis of my thesis, the basis of my study. And it was very exciting work, but it was definitely a labor of love, you know, to do that for a number of years, getting the Ph.D. while I was working, I have a ball, I am working, and I'm raising a family, Uh, but I definitely believe my purpose is to, Take you know what I know now and move the agenda forward to help animals and I think that if we reach children uh and and because they are kind and they're not jaded
2: mm-hmm. uh,
4: then they're they're really they really get it they really get issues of fairness and justice and um and the way we treat animals. They're very they're very interested in that topic, so um, you know I take whatever you might be an accountant, you know you might be a lawyer, but if you have this other passion to help animals, whatever your skill is, you know we can use help in all areas. Because what my study allowed me to do is now I write my own articles for different teacher magazines, so I spread oh, awesome. the word. About humane education So uh, we need all the help we can get uh, how If you're about, a shy uh, person But you don't mind writing a letter To the editor Or a letter to the mayor Or if you're a gregarious person Outgoing person You want to do the tabling event, uh, we We really can use that All hands on deck
1: How about next time I have you on We talk about humane education And make that the main focus And we'll still get updates on uh, all the activities of the League of Humane uh, Voters and the Animal Protection League and, and so forth, but um, that is something that uh, everyone should learn more about. It sounds uh, wonderful.
4: Thank you. I'd love to talk about it. Um, like I say, in the last year, since having gotten my doctorate, I was able to get some articles in uh, New Jersey Teacher Magazine, uh, Education Week, uh, a division of. Um, NBC's Education Nation I wrote an article targeting parents of what they could do um, So yeah, I'm very passionate about the topic And the best thing about it Is the amount of free resources That people with kids Can download They'll get their kids excited to Read and even do math Or do science All while learning about kindest animals But they're actually learning the content as well so I'd be I'd be delighted to talk about that, uh, and you know it all intersects the the politics, the activism, yes, the does. education, into making uh, us better and more worthy, you know, to share this special planet and treat it well uh, with our with our co-inhabitants of the planet. Our, our so, sharing um, time
1: with yeah. other beings. Right, um, right Our our journey today is coming to an end And I want to thank you so much For helping to launch uh, Champions of Arcadia uh, Arcadia is from the uh, um, Ancient Greek conception Of like the untamed wild uh, mm-hmm. Where the goddess uh, Diana Also called Artemis You know yep,
4: uh, Goddess of the hunt, right
1: Yes, yeah, yes But not only the goddess of the hunt The goddess of the animals Um Yeah If people were going to eat uh, the animal or if the animal was, uh, you know, then they could hunt, she was a huntress, Uh, but animals like small animals and uh, um, even small children came under her protection, and uh, animals that were endangered, like the Serenian hind, were sacred to her, and if any hunter dared to hunt them, she would uh, hunt them. (laughs) Pretty much.
4: Wow. So then it shows a, what a wonderful name for the show because we could use that protection now.
1: <laughs> yes. And uh, the Arcadia is the, the nature in its natural state, the untamed uh, wild. And uh, uh, one of the first things I got involved in when coming to Tenafly was uh, fighting for the green. Um, and uh, so, because uh, you're doing great things.
4: Oh, I'm so so glad to uh, reconnect with you, and thank you so much for having me on your show. And um, you know, to anybody out there, thanks for listening to me. I hope I, I was entertaining.
1: <laughs> You're you phenomenally entertaining, uh, very well informed, and passionate about uh, what you speak. Um, people can contact you through uh, the uh, a humane. Uh, uh, voters, Is that correct?
4: Yes, the League of Humane Voters, um, they could either email info at lohvnj.org or julie at lohvnj.org. Uh, but, you know, for kind of like larger questions, then info at lohvnj.org would go to our executive directors. And, and, uh, but I'd be happy to connect with anybody. They can forward me any messages as well.
1: Thanks again, and uh, I'm looking forward to speaking to you again, both in person and on uh, the podcast.
4: Yes, thank you so much, and uh, looking forward to talking about humane education next time.
1: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> be well.
4: You too. Take care.
1: You Bye. too, and thanks to all who joined us uh, tonight. Until next time, this is Hercules and Julie, wishing you joyous journeys and amazing adventures. Bye-bye.